Ten years ago, I interviewed 100 fascinating people and documented their stories in a two-volume book series. Today, my journey continues. I'll be engaging with captivating guests, having candid, meaningful, and uncensored discussion as I aim to reveal the passion that comes from within, unlocking the mysteries needed to make purposeful change. My objective is to be a connector and enlighten listeners through stories of struggle and success, heartache and inspiration, offering solutions to challenges we face each and every day. This is a broadcast of real people, real stories, and real conversation. Everyone has a story. My job is to ensure their stories are told. My name is Roger Brooks, inspired by Brian Rose of London Real and the London Real Academy and the Broadcast Yourself Accelerator course, I now bring you American Real. Welcome to our seventh episode of American Real, where this week our guest is Al Downing, a former Major League Baseball player who pitched in a golden era back in the 1960s and 70s. As a young man, Al was signed by the most winningest team in all of sports, the New York Yankees, where he played for several years and also played for the legendary Los Angeles Dodgers. My conversation with Al was as real as they come. It was also educational, uplifting, as we discussed baseball, what it was like growing up in the 50s, and how he wants to leave his mark on humanity. I hope you enjoy my conversation with him as much as I did. The nostalgia brought me back to a time when life seemed to be simpler, where you looked out for your neighbors like your own. I hope this episode helps each of us see how important it is to be kind to one another. If you spend any length of time with Al Downing, as I did, it's something you'll quickly see. As always, please share this episode with your friends, like us on Facebook and Twitter, and don't forget to subscribe to the American Real YouTube channel. I'd like to thank our partners and sponsors, especially Happy Socks, turning an everyday essential into a colorful design item. As you know, I'll be wearing happy socks each and every episode. And now, without further ado, I bring to you, Gentleman Al Downing. Welcome to American Real. This is Roger Brooks, and my very special guest today is Gentleman Al Downing, a former league baseball player. Uh, you were a pitcher. In 1964, you were the American League strikeout leader. In 1967, a member of the All-Star team, you pitched eight seasons for the New York Yankees, six for the Dodgers, while having brief stints with the Oakland A's and the Milwaukee Brewers. Um, in 1971, while with the Dodgers, you were the Comeback Player of the Year. Um, in, uh, you had a record of 20 and 9 that year. You appeared in three World Series and had uh, the privilege to share the field with players such as Yogi Berra, Whitey Ford, and Mickey Mantle. You had some great coaches like Tommy Lasorda, and then, then went on to have a very successful broadcasting career. Uh, more than anything, you have a reputation of being a gentleman, and I can't tell you how proud I am to have you on our show today. Al Downing, welcome to American Real. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. I've been to Binghamton many times, never knew this building even existed. That's right. There's a lot of hidden gems in Binghamton, yes, so, so we appreciate it. So I, I know you're in town for the Security Mutual uh, Life uh, Golf Tournament, um, and I know you're a member of the Black Aces. 
which was coined by, by Jim Mudcat Grant. Um, first, before we get started, who are the Black Aces? What is that all about? Well, the Black Aces are, are African-American pitchers in the history of the game of baseball, of course, beginning in 1947 up until present day, who have had seasons in which they had won 20 games or more. And, of course, I was very fortunate. I did it one time. Then you get fellows like uh, Ferguson Jenkins, who did it six times, sure, sure. Bob Gibson, and then Dave Stewart four times. You know, So I don't even talk about mine. <laughs> but what a, what a success. It's remarkable. Well, it's a great thrill, but p people uh, have sometimes... When we talk about sports such as baseball, baseball is the quintessential team sport. No matter how good a pitcher you are, how good stuff you have, you definitely are dependent upon your fielders and your hitters. And so, therefore, it, it is team. And so I don't go around bragging about having won 20 games because I thought the year before, which I split between Oakland and Milwaukee, that I had, I had pitched quite nearly as well because I didn't pitch as many innings. In fact, I pitched twice as many innings the next year in, 60, in 72, uh, 71, but I was playing with a better group of players and a more seasoned group of players and, um, and players who had been through a postseason playoff uh, uh, activity. And so therefore as a pitcher, and I was, 20, I was at 28, 29 years old, I had already been on three World Series teams when the 61, 63, and 64 Yankees. So I wasn't intimidated by circumstances and going out on the field having had one bad season, I wasn't thinking next year is going to be another bad season. I was thinking, hey, maybe I'll get a chance to you know, pitch more often and help this team win. Sure. No, and you mentioned uh, team sport, and it is about that chemistry, right? Just um, certain teams just gel and, and, and play well together, and, and I'm sure you've experienced the highs of low and lows of that. Well, that's a result of the teamwork of not only your scouts, your coaches, but also the manager on the ball club. And you, you, you pick the types of players you want. And the key to most players in base, most teams today in baseball is really the depth you have on your bench because nobody can go out there and play every day. And I, I've always felt that. The schedule is much too demanding. In fact, last week, the Seattle Mariners were playing in, uh, in uh, New York against the Yankees, and they were talking about their schedule and how many thousands of miles. And it was like they travel something like 70-some thousand miles a year. And I'm thinking, whoa, man, you know, like to go from Seattle down to Tampa Bay, sure. you can imagine back that's up to trip. New York, that's a heck of a trip and for players. I mean, it's, it's, it's racking. It has to so take a toll. You, you, need, you need 25 players for that team. Sure, sure. So we're definitely going to talk about baseball today, but I, I do want to get to know uh, more about you as a person. And uh, can you take us back, what, almost 60 years ago now when you first landed in Binghamton with the triplets? What was Binghamton like at that time? Where was your mindset at that point? What was it like? Well, <laughs> first we have to go further back than that. Uh, as Please. a kid, I always I, I grew up in, in Trenton, New Jersey, and Trenton is like halfway between uh, New York and Philadelphia. So you always saw these planes flying over overhead, and I'd stand in my backyard with a ball thrown it up in the air and catching it and watching these airplanes, and, and that was before jet travel, so the planes were not that high, and dreaming one day of being on an airplane going someplace. And uh, so when I was about 14, we got to play a Babe Ruth League ball. We had to travel to Maryland. It was our all-star team for our league. We called the Trenton Babe Ruth League, which was a conglomeration of all the players from Mercer County. Hmm. And most Babe Ruth Leagues were like communities 
Babe Ruth League. So they were having like a Vestal League and they have an Endicott League. And, well, the Trenton Babe Ruth League was kids all over the county could, could come and play. And you go trial for any team you wanted to try out. So therefore, it was the strongest Babe Ruth League in, in the whole county. Sure. And uh, we won the state championship that year. We went to compete in the Middle Atlantic States Championship down in Frederick, Maryland. We got knocked out in the semifinals. The next year, we went to compete in the national championship in Portland, Oregon, and we won that championship wow. in 1956. The irony is the first year we took a, a car and we drove all the way down to Frederick, Maryland, which wasn't that far. But when you're a kid, everything's far. So right. you know, oh, it's you know, like a long trip, you know, but probably about eight hours, I don't know. Right. <laughs> but the next year, we thought, okay, we're going to, we're going to uh, Portland and we're going to get on that airplane. Well, we go down to the train station, we think, well, the train's going to take us to the airport. The train took us all the way to Chicago, then up over Milwaukee Road, and they, what they call it, and all over the, the North Badlands. And it was the most enlightening thing I'd ever have happened to me in my life. It changed my whole outlook on life. Because I always thought about traveling. And when I saw all the things that we saw on that train that you probably never could see in an, in an airplane, I said, wow, this is beautiful, you know, this is great. Well, you forget about baseball for like three days going across country. And you're sleeping, you have a, a bunk mate, you know, in your little, little compartment. And at night, we'd go into the sky car and we'd look at these old little towns we were going through up in the Dakotas, you know. And uh, come down to Portland, we win the national championship. We figured, well, now we're going to get in an airplane and go home. No, we get on a train and turn around and we do it first, all over again. First track. But again, it, it gave us a chance to bond because on our team, we had. I had probably, there was probably four fellows who went to high school with me. Well, we were all in junior high school, public school. Okay. And then the rest of the team came from uh, either one of the local community, local townships. We had two guys from local townships. And the other players came from the local parochial high school. And so we all, we all knew one another from Little League pretty much. Mm -hmm. And that's how we bonded. But uh, we, we became better friends. And now we, we communicate all the time. But that trip, in some ways, you said you were enlightened. It really changed your outlook on on everything, right? As far or, as travel or, or is concerned. What, well, I always wanted to travel, but just reinforced it. It just like, yeah, I definitely have to go someplace. I have to, you know, you travel now. That's that's my calling. I have mm -hmm. to travel. I have to get out. And uh, what better way to travel than to play baseball? Sure. And at that young age, were you aware that you had special abilities, a special talent? Or, or were you about the same as your as your peers? No, I was 15, and I was uh, like all 15-year-olds. You didn't know where you stood. Mm -hmm. You just went out there, and you just played as well as you could play for that given day and hope it was good enough to help your team win. And uh, I think it's when you get around 18, you start to realize that maybe I have opportunities to go farther. And, and the scouts can start talking to you and, and telling you what they think your, your, your uh, promise can be. And the scout who followed me was a fellow named Bill Yancey, who had played in the Negro League, and he had played with a basketball team called Harlem Renaissance. And he says, I've seen a lot of pitchers and a lot of players, a lot of athletes. He says, you're, I was a little kid. I was like five, eight, maybe 155 pounds. He says, you're a good pitcher. He says, you can pitch in the big leagues. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, God, here's more of this stuff, right? <laughs> That's great. But he was... He, was he saw something in you. He was prophetic, yes. Mm -hmm. he, saw, he saw something in me as a pitcher, yes. Mm -hmm. So then you must have had a little bit of a growth spurt and, and, and got stronger. 
Um, how fast were you throwing as a, say, an 18-year-old? Well, actually, I went, I went away to college. I went, went to Muhlenberg College down in Allentown, Allentown. Pennsylvania. I went there for one year, and I was a basketball player. And at the end of the one year, they wanted me to spend the summer on, on academic probation and come to classes. And I said, I can take classes in Trenton. You know, and he had to take, make up a science class, I think it was. And the guy said, no, you have to do it up here. And I said, well, if I do it up here, I can't make money to come back in the fall. And uh, Yancey said, just hold still. You know, he said, you, know, you never know what will happen. At that time, he was working for the Phillies. And if you, are you, well, you're too young to remember, but the Yankees underwent a whole metamorphosis that year. They had, they had lost the World Series in 1960 to the uh, Pirates. Okay. And they, they swept the house clean. They got rid of the general manager, George Weiss, got rid of the manager, Casey Stengel, and brought a whole new uh, management regime in. And uh, one of the things they did, they brought in new scouts. And Yancey was one of the scouts. He said, but I won't sign unless I can sign that little kid down in Trenton. And they didn't even know who the little kid down in Trenton was. No and kidding. So they asked, they, the scouting director asked Mr. Yancey, he says, well, Bill, you think uh, this kid can pitch in the big leagues? He said, everybody I sign, I think can play in the big leagues. And uh, Isn't that once something? again, he was right. Yes. So uh, this man was obviously uh, a major influence on your life. And he saw something in you at a very young age and really propelled your career. Well, he was a major influence and, and in more ways than one because he and his wife had no children. And they had met when he was in special services. She was dancing at the Cotton Club. And uh, he was playing ball for the Renaissance at first. And, and he thought he was cool, you know. <laughs> That's what I always say. You, know, you must have had a good line, you know. Right, right. But, but they went together with special services down to Panama at that time. That's what they did when you were in the military. And he would, he would see ball players down there, and he would recommend ball players, and that's how he got into scouting. And so when, they, when I went to visit them at their house, they lived in a little town, Morristown, New Jersey, mm -hmm. which is south, just right near Philadelphia. And down in their basement, they had it made up in the wall. He had every player of color he had, he had seen in the Philly organization. And there must have been probably 75 of them. Wow. The guys were coming from the Bahamas and uh, Bermuda and the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Mexico, Panama. And he, they were all on his wall, you know. And, and that, that gave me you know, really a lot of, of uh, confidence because I said, wow, he thinks that much of me. And so I see some of the guys he has up there and he's a pretty decent ball player. And I'm sure he put your picture on the wall at some point. No, I didn't have a Philly uniform, though. <laughs> okay, that's right, that's right. <laughs> so tell us about that. So you're, you're about 20 years old, and you sign with the New York Yankees. What, what was that like for a kid? What was that like for your family? Take us back to that time. Well, first off, when he was with the Phillies, uh, uh, there was some consternation about whether or not I should sign or go to Muhlenberg, and I hadn't made a commitment to Muhlenberg, so I went to Muhlenberg. Okay. And then at the end of that season, he said, don't go back to school. Go to JC because some good things are about to happen. And that's when they made the changes in the front office with the Yankees. And in December of 60, I signed with the Yankees. And the deal was that he told me, he, he said, look, I don't want you to, in those days we had a system was D-ball, C-ball, B-ball, before you got the A-ball. And the uh, triplets were A-ball at that time. And he says, I don't want you to play D-ball because 
you're too good a pitcher and the guys don't catch the ball down there and you'll have innings where you'll throw 25 pitches and that's no good for your arm. So I'm going to recommend you take less money and go play A, but get an A contract. So I got an A contract to play with the triplets. Well, no, no, to go to spring training with the A team. I see. However, I don't know who, where I'm going to play. Probably B ball. And uh, as it were, I went to spring training with the triplets, and I've seen all these guys, and I read about these guys, how much money they got. You know, this guy got forty thousand. This guy got sixty thousand. I got sixteen thousand. You know, and I'm thinking, wow, these guys must really be good because that's how you parlayed things in sure. those days. And little did I know, it's it's about a desire and hard work and uh, motivation. You know, where are you headed? So speaking of that, um, back then, what what would your workout regimen be? What um, you know, what did you do to prepare yourself, both mentally and physically, for the major leagues of, of that day? Well, when I was when I signed, it was in December, so I started going down to the gym. Okay. Go down to Y. That was the only gym we had. Go down to Y and I. I'd work out, and I, I was always cautioned never to never to lift weights as a pitcher. So I, I basically ran a lot, and I used those horizontal ladders to pull myself up, chin myself up. But I was a basketball player, so I played a lot of basketball. Of course, later on, they didn't want you to play basketball, but that was my conditioner. Sure. And one of the fellows I encountered down there, and, and I had known him because he played against my brother, was Bo Belinsky. And and so Bo said, "Hey, kid," he said, "I hear you signed with the Yankees." He says. Hey, you, you'll do well, you know. But Bo was maybe, oh, probably five five years older than okay. I was. But he, he was very helpful. He said, look, he said, you're going to take a lot of stuff from some people. He said, but just, you know, just keep your, keep your chin up because everybody's going to critique you and try to tell you what they think you can do to be better. He said, the fact that they're signing you tells you that they know you can play. So don't let anybody deter you from that. Great advice. It was great advice. Yes, it was, yeah. And uh, so I, I, that kind of you know, helped me out going down to the gym, working hard and running around the track, which I hated to do because I hate to run in circles, you know. Sure, sure. <laughs> but uh, that was the way I prepared myself. And how about from a pitching standpoint? I mean, did you, I know when I was a kid, I was a pitcher as well. I would go down to the factory and throw against the brick wall um, or just, you know, grab a neighborhood kid and, and pitch. What kind of things did you do? Did you have a piece of chalk? I did. I did. I, with a box? Yeah, they, they they right into right. that target. I'm impressed. I'm yes, impressed. Sir. Yes, I tell people that all the time. I yes. said, one of the problems I see in modern day pitchers is that they don't understand what that square means. That square means your strike zone. Right. You can throw the ball anywhere in that strike in that square and it's going to be in the strike zone. You don't have to throw it in the center. And yet I see when pitchers get in trouble, they throw it in the center all the time. And everybody says, oh, that, was, that guy really pounded that ball. I said, that's a batting practice fastball. Mm -hmm. You know, throw it about four inches that way, the guy will probably break his back, you know. Right. But that's one of the ways I, I, I really helped myself because I would go to the boys club, I'd get a sponge rubber ball and throw up against the wall. Because in the wintertime, you know, until, you know, you know in December, you're not going right. to do much. It's more about accuracy. And in December of 1960 was one of the worst winters we had because it snowed. And I that, that winter, I had a uh, Christmas job for two weeks of delivering mail, which also helped me. Because I'm out, you know, subbing for the regular, the regular mail carriers in the, in the, uh, in the post office, and he's putting together the routes, and you're out there walking the routes, and I was working in the suburbs, up and down these hills, and good I, conditioning. Hey, I, I was, that, it was a game to me. It was like, oh wow, this is great, and I'm doing all this walking, I'm getting in shape, you know, and that's great. <laughs> so that that counted for the running I couldn't do. Sure, sure. So. Um, Let's fast forward for a moment on this topic of today. So the technology of today is incredible. 
and a good friend of ours uh, works for Major League Baseball and actually was instrumental in that technology of, of the strike zone. Um, do you think that's changed the game, uh, good or bad? It, it shouldn't, but it does. It, it's supposed to be an educational tool for fans, I think. Okay. It's not supposed to be. The, the pitcher should never deviate from the things that are going to make him a, a, a good pitcher. When you talk to most good pitchers, you say, what are, you, what are your strengths? Well, is my fastball up and in on a right-hander if you're a right-handed pitcher, or my left-hander is a fastball up and in and the breaking ball down and away. Those are your strengths. You don't worry about the strike zone. But you all you never threw balls in the dirt, and what I see today is I see pitchers who get caught up in the fact that they think someone said you have to expand the strike zone. Their idea of expanding the strike zone is throwing a 58-foot fastball and bouncing it off of home plate. Home plate. I said no, that's not what they're talking about. They're just talking about throwing the pitch a little below the knees, right? And and getting the hitter to hit on because the only thing you can do is hit on top of it and hit a ground ball somewhere. But somewhere along the line, they didn't have that experience that allowed them to find that out. I see, I see. So um, what was your go-to pitch? Fastball. And that's another thing. It, it's, uh, you know, if you ask uh, Carl Lewis, uh, what was his strengths as a runner? His strengths as a runner, he always said was that my goal, my second gear, he had a second gear for 40 yards. And, and, sure. and he said, where everybody else was slowing down, I was taking off. Well, your fastball is your number one pitch, and everything works off your fastball. So what the fastball gives you, it gives you arm speed and gives you command of the ball within the strike zone. Now, when you throw your breaking balls, breaking balls are mechanical pitches. And so I always rail when I hear somebody said, he threw an off-speed breaking ball. I said, well, a breaking ball is an off-speed pitch. So that's kind of like a... <laughs> right, right. Well, what are you talking about? You know, but but you you have to di di differentiate between the two. So if you have a good fastball, I've seen two pitchers who pit who are in the Hall of Fame now: Fergie Jenkins and Tom Seaver, who had good fa good fastballs, not great fastballs, good fastballs, but they had great command of those fastballs in in the forced corners of the, that box. The placement. Yes, they the could placement. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And they knew that I could throw a fastball belt high to you in here, and you wouldn't be able to handle it. But I threw that same fastball shoulder high out there, and you couldn't handle it. And you're saying, this guy's got a tough fastball. Yeah, well, sure, because he's throwing it in spots you can't handle it. Right, right. He threw it down the middle, the guy probably hit a 400 feet. So did you like the mental component of the game, um, the control as a pitcher, um, the thrill of really a chess game what pitch do I throw next did you enjoy that part of it not when I was younger when okay. I was younger I, I could throw hard I could throw very hard and, and, it, and when I was in Binghamton most people would say well he didn't have a good fastball but my fastball ran a lot as a left-hander my fastball had that late movement they call it but when I got to New York I guess the adrenaline came in and, and being in the big league you know and I just turned 20 and you're saying why am I here well I'm going to make the most of it and so every time you walked out there, you thought you had to throw the ball through a brick wall. And uh, consequently, I'd lost command of my pitches, and they were all over the place. But sooner or later, I, I, I started to calm down a little bit And by the end of the year. Because I came up in July, around July 16th. And by the end of the year, I realized that, you know, what it would take for me to be a successful pitcher. But we were in a pennant race, and so they couldn't spend too much time with me. 
but I get, did get to set through that World Series, and that was a wonderful experience in itself. And watch fellows like Whitey Ford and Ralph Terry and Bill Stafford, and watched how they pitched. Sure. And know that this game is more about thinking and, and, and logistics, and like location, than it is about just overpowering a batter. Mm -hmm. So do you think as the years went on, you became better and better at that part of the game? Yes, and when I hurt my arm in 67, that was my saving grace because I had already made that transition to being a pitcher who could move my fastball around, and I no longer had to go out there thinking I had to throw three super fastballs to strike somebody out. I could throw two good fastballs, but change up, and then a real good fastball, and, and the, the batter would go, where'd that come from? And right, right. That, to me, that was the whole essence of pitching. So it sounds like you started pitching very young. That was, was that your first love? Well, my brother and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago, and, and he's three years older than me. He said, you know, we had neighborhood games, and we go challenge these different neighborhoods, and, and he was like the general <laughs> manager. Hey, you want to play a game at nine in the morning? You know, and then we play a game for about two hours, and the guys are going to lunch, and he have a game with another neighborhood at you know, one o'clock, and then he said, well, the only thing, I, we, I had to bring my brother along, you know, and, and so, and so, they said, what, do you, what does he do? He pitches. They see this little peanut coming along. Right, right. All I did was throw the ball over the plate. And so he, he says, I, I just remember. He said, how old were you at that time? He said, you know, you had to be like what, seven or eight. I said, yeah. And those okay. guys were like 12 years old. You sure. Know? But that's great. I mean, even kids today, I love when they play with the older kids. It just teaches them so much. Yes, it teaches you. You have to do the rudimentary things in the game in order to be successful. It's not, it's not about power. We all aspire to be the guy who can throw the ball 99 miles an hour, but by the same token, you know, you're going to have, you get whiplash but trying to do that. Right, right. So when you learn how to pitch, it makes the game much easier. And my first pitching coach was Johnny Sane, and one day he said to me, he said, Al, he says, you know, you can get three outs or four balls quicker than anybody I've ever seen. He says, when you walk the guy, it's, I look up and it's all of a sudden three and oh. That's great. <laughs> but uh, I want you one day to go out there and pitch a game without walking anyone. And I did it. And, 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 and it wasn't that I was consciously trying not to walk anyone. I was trying to get ahead in the count, stand ahead sure. of the count, rather than having a two and oh count and then saying, here's three fastballs, try to hit them. And I know you're also on the short list of pitchers that have thrown nine pitches to get three outs. The immaculate inning. That's awesome. Yes. Very cool. Yeah, I always say three guys you couldn't hit. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so who were your uh, childhood heroes growing up? My father. My father, my uncles. Uh, you know, the people you come in contact with mainly and the coaches you had at that time. And from a, an international point or a national point, probably Jackie Robinson, because everybody talks about Jackie Robinson and Joe Lewis. They were our big heroes as a kid. Sure. But, you know, they were beyond your, your reach. Mm -hmm. People you would never come in contact with. Right. But you had the baseball card or the poster. Oh, on you the had everyone's sure. baseball card. You had the baseball card. for You had the baseball team. Every team, you had them in order. Right. And you know where the guy was born. You know what his <laughs> nickname was. Right. You know? <laughs> so that was your Bible. And yes. I always laugh when kids say, oh, I don't collect cards anymore. Well, you don't know what you're missing, you know. But, what a fun but, time. But, but as kids, that was, that was, that's part of being a kid, you yeah. know. And cards were cheap then, too. They were. And I grew up in the 70s, so uh, the Dodgers were my team. Um, and, and you were on that team. You were one of my heroes. I, you know, okay. I, I was a young man, but uh, you played with Steve Garvey and Ron Say and, and Davey Lopes. I mean, what a team. Um, I guess 
you know, from the, looking from the outside in, you being there and you're living the moment, um, what was that like? Well, actually, the, the best diver team I played on actually was a 71 team. Was that and your first year? That's my first okay. year. And that's when we had Wills, Willie Davis was in the lineup, Moda was in the lineup, uh, then uh, Tom Haller was our catcher, West Park was the first baseman. We had uh, Bill Singer, Don Sutton, and myself in the rotation, okay. Jim Brewer in the bullpen, and uh, we lost by one game to the Giants, and all the Giant fans kind of rubbed that in, you know, but I, that's okay, we'll get you. But uh, that stayed until 73 when they brought up Russell, say, Lopes, and, and DeGarvey, and those guys came in and took over at the infield. And then we kind of like went up and down because 74, we won the championship. We had uh, Jimmy Wynn and Mike Marshall. They basically were the two guys we had brought in and they really were the impetus for us winning. But the team really gelled in 75, 75 I think last 75 season we brought in Dusty Baker, 76 yes. we brought in Reggie Smith. Yes. Because they brought an attitude in. These guys were young stars. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, uh, guys like Lopes and Garvey and Russell and they really respected them because they were guys like you who had looked up to them and seen what they had accomplished. And Reggie was a big time star back in Boston, and uh, now he's playing with with, with you guys. And, and he's on our team. Sure. And, and guys understand. And he, he was. In, and they're both no nonsense players. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was like, look, this is a battle out here, man. You know, we're out here for you know, three hours. In those days, games are shorter. You know, two and a half, three hours. And this is a battle for two and a half. And and we we won the world. We went to the World Series that year. So how many World Series were you in? Four. Four. But I okay. sat through 60, uh, 61. That's right, with yeah. the Yankees. Yeah. I was okay. in the bullpen in Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, what's your secret to remaining so grounded? I mean, you just have such a great demeanor. Um, you, you said you had some great role models, your father, your uncle. Um, is that it? Is it just about being with, uh, surrounding yourself with good people? Well, <laughs> I didn't surround myself with good people. I came in contact with good people, and it was my teachers, my coaches, and, and, and playing in a program like the, the, in the boys club program, you weren't playing against the you know, other boys clubs, you're playing in you just, you know, Thursday night basketball with your best friends, and you play nine-year-old playing basketball, and your coach is teaching you all about sportsmanship, you know, and camaraderie, and then, of course, you know, when you played in the police athletic league, that was an open league, it was like a county league, so you you could go try out for any team you wanted. And the coaches welcome you coming in and trying out. And so uh, you go and you play for those teams and you met guys from all over the city that you didn't even know. You're only 12 years old. So that, that was a big step, not only to my self-confidence, but just expanding my horizons as an individual and watching these coaches who were dedicating their time you know, to help you out. And Babe Ruth League, it was even magnified farther because they were coming from the township and guys would say, well, you need a ride home. Yeah, okay, we'll give you a ride home. You know, and the guys will give you a ride home. You live halfway across town. They'd still take you home. Mm -hmm. And it, it made you realize that these guys are factory workers and doing whatever they mm -hmm. did in order to make sure their son had a place to play. And also the, the other guys on the team, they, they gave the they effort cared. to play. They cared. Absolutely. And then nobody was, uh, was thinking, well, who's going to be in the big league? They were thinking, hey, we want the kids to have this league and, and enjoy it. Right. So how has that changed today? I know, you, you know, you're have high interest in, in, in the youth and education. 
of the youth in, in these leagues. How has it changed from that time to now? I think our society has really not uh, kept up the, the value and the importance of our teachers. And every teacher I had was a, had made a significant impact on my life from first grade on up. And uh, my seventh grade English teacher and her husband, they retired down in uh, Fort Myers, Florida. And every so often she'll call me up. She says, this is your favorite English teacher. Isn't that <laughs> wonderful? I, I was worried about you. And we'd have a nice conversation about something. I would mention one of the classmates. Say, oh, I remember him or her. And you tell mm -hmm. him I said hello. But, but it, it's, uh, it's that experience where people, uh, there was a different concern that we had for one another, I think, in our society in those days. And I think life was simpler. And I think one of the things was, I think in most households, one parent worked. And so the other parent was at home all the time. And of course now it's a different society and both parents have to work because just the economics of the society. And I think people cared about one another. My neighborhood uh, where I grew up in Trenton, New Jersey, I remember you know, we had neighborhood games in the afternoon. The boys played the girls in this big field we had. And of course they were always signifying on us because they were older than us. They were. 12 or 14, we were like 8 or 9. <laughs> they were beating us and we right. thought we were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> there was a big age gap there. But years later, they I remember one of my sisters said, five sisters, and one of them saying, hey, we're going to have a neighborhood uh, reunion. Why don't you come home? I said, okay, I'll be home. And that was when they had well, a terrible snowstorm. Now I'm out in California. I can't get home for that. So I said, how'd it go? Everybody was asking about you. I said, how many people? Yeah, oh, we have about 300 people. And it was like this neighborhood of these streets that all uh, came together. It was called a reservoir. I lived on Reservoir Street and wasn't far from the reservoir. But all these streets and all the families that lived there for all ethnicities had grown up together, going to nice. elementary, junior high, and high school together. Hey, where's Giggy? Giggy's my family nickname. Where's Giggy? Is Giggy coming, you know? And my sister said, I don't know when he's coming, you know? <laughs> but, but all these friends, they, they would ask and want to know. And then that became an act, a ritual for about five years. They would have this neighborhood, this party, and uh, get, just people get together and just, you know, relive, you know, having been through that whole experience of growing up in the 40s and the 50s, and now mm -hmm. we've made it and we're trying to make it nicer for our kids. Mm -hmm. So uh, what was your household like? Was it a strict household? Yeah, it was strict. How many, how many siblings? Eight. Wow. But, but my father had one regimen. It was, uh, don't ever get in trouble. <laughs> my father was pretty big. He's a pretty strong man. He <laughs> drove a truck, had real strong hands. And I had like, he had, se he had seven, seven brothers, seven cousins and, and three sisters. Don't you ever get in trouble? Because if you do, I'm not coming to get you. Okay, pops. <laughs> and he became so my best friend. Place. He became my best friend. He called me Big Shorty. Well, Big Shorty, what are we going to do now, you know? So. That's wonderful. Um, that must have been so nice for you to play uh, in front of your dad. Uh, well, it was nice to play in front of him. Unfortunately, he passed before I got the 20 season mark. I see. He passed in 70 when I was out in Oakland. And okay. uh, that, was, that was like a bummer. And, you know, it's, it's something that stayed with me for a while because I, in my mind, I looked at the time, the fact when I left, really to go away and play ball when I left for good because I came back home after the 61 season after the 62 season I went to the army and after the 63 season I came home the 64 season I said I got to get out of here and I went to live in New York and I would come home occasionally and uh, you know we have days off we'd have like Mondays off and Thursdays off so I would come home on a Wednesday night 
after a day game. And uh, I said, but dad, I'm going home, you know, after our dinner, you know. He said, why are you out so late? I said, games aren't over till 10 o'clock. And, and so it wasn't that late and, and it wasn't that long a drive of 60 miles in those days you didn't have the traffic. But then he, he quite, he, he understood, but I, I, I kind of look back in retrospect sometimes and say, I wish I had spent more time because mm-hmm. you don't know how much time we have. Sure, sure, no doubt. Uh, do you have any regrets? I mean, I have short regrets. I have, I have regrets of not spending more time with my father. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think now, as, as siblings, we there's uh, there's six of us left, and we try to get together occasionally whenever we can. But they're all back east, and I live out here, so I go back. You know. mm-hmm. But uh, you know, it's, we talk all the time, and now the nephews—you get the nephews visiting you, and and they go back and say, "Well, Uncle Al is really strict. You know, he won't, <laughs> he won't let us eat in the car." You know, I said, "That's right. When you get a car, you can eat in your car." <laughs> right. Right. But, uh, but you try to be, I try to be the uncle to them that I, my uncles were to me. Mm-hmm. They gave me guidance. That role model. Oh, they gave me tremendous guidance. Yes. Awesome. Yes. So, uh, what was the pressure of New York like back when you played? Was, was it, um, and, and Los Angeles for that matter, um, was it tough playing in front of the New York crowds? Yeah, the pressure in New York was trying to get on the subway. <laughs> Not throwing the baseball. Six people lined up at the, at the door, and the door opens, and, you'll, and by the time the people get out, you hope you can get on before the door closes. Right. But uh, no, I, I never I never called it. There's pressure playing in the major leagues. I remember when I, when I first, when I left here in Binghamton, I left here, it was in July, and, and my first start was in Washington. I got knocked out in the second inning, and I thought, okay, they're going to send me back to Binghamton. They said, no, we're not going to send you back to Binghamton because there were only like well, two months left in the season. In those days, the minor league season ended on Labor Day. Okay. And so we're not going to send you back. We think you'll learn more sitting on the bench up here. So, so every day I, I was staying in a hotel up in, in, in the Bronx, up in Grand Concourse. I would get up, go down the street, eat breakfast, and then get on the subway and go downtown and walk around. I wanted to see what Manhattan was all about and, and see the beauty of Manhattan. And uh, I remember I would come in a game like it was a, a blowout game. And maybe we were down by five runs, and you know, and they throw me in in the sixth inning to pitch an inning. And then one night in Yankee Stadium, we we're playing the Kansas City Athletics before they moved to Oakland, and uh, they brought me in a game in like the second inning. And I was like, whoa, you know. And uh, I go in there, and I think I pitched about four or five innings, and, and I handled myself quite well. I only think a couple of runs. And somebody said, yeah, it was the worst team in the league. I said, yeah, but they were a big league team. That's right. You know, and I was a kid only, you know, I was still only 20 years old. Sure. And uh, it, it gave me a tremendous amount of confidence. And I think it, it, it told them that I was not the guy who was the wild guy in that first game that I pitched in, in uh, Washington against the Senators, that I did have my, myself together. I got my portly back and that I had promise of being a good pitcher. And uh, next year we'll send him the trip away. So. Mm-hmm. So the pressure was never a pressure of performance. It was a pressure you put on yourself, yourself. to trying to do something you're not capable of doing. Sure, sure. And um, do you, are you a proponent of you can accomplish anything you put your mind to? No, I think you're, I'm a proponent of you can prepare yourself to accomplish anything that's put in front of you. Now, how well you do it is another story, but you, you don't necessarily always you know, get things done the way you would like to get them done. Or, I mean, yeah, I'd like to you know, climb Mount Everest, but I'm a realist, you know. Mm-hmm. You know I'm, sure. I'm doing those, you know, one of those things where you go into, in, you know, where, do, in that place down in Manhattan where you climb. Oh, right. 
<laughs> that's Mount Everest. Right, know? right, right. You no, know, no, you can, you can, you can do a lot of things. I think we don't challenge ourselves enough as human beings, and and, and that's one of the things I was thinking about the other day. Uh, one of the experiences that really changed me was after the '62 season in Richmond. I joined the Army Reserves and I took my basic training down in uh, Fort Fort uh, Jackson, South Carolina. And I, I thought I was going to go to Fort Dix, New Jersey. That'd be right outside of Trenton. Well, actually, I'm glad I went to Fort Jackson because the weather was milder in, in October and November down there. Of course, basic training was over by the end of uh, November. So we, we every morning you get up and run. And I never ran. I mean, as kids, you ran because you're racing from one stoplight to the right. other. Run on, you know, on the but side. no distance, really. But no, no distance, right. no. And even in basketball, we didn't do a lot of running for, for training. And so we had a mile run. So we're gonna have, we get up in the morning, you, you run like maybe a mile and a half, something like that. But you have, you have your fatigues on, you have your combat boots on, a T-shirt. And you're, you're jogging. And then for about the last, oh, maybe, maybe... 50, 60 yards, they let you go sprint. And I would just run because I wanted to see how fast I could run. Of course, you got those combat boots on. And I didn't realize what a bonus that was because that made your legs stronger. Sure. And then we had our first 100-yard, uh, we had our first mile run. And I was, I got out there. I said, oh, I don't know how I'll run, but I'll get out there and run because I had never, I never been run, run a mile. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd run a mile, but never at one time. Sure. So I'm out there and I'm running. I'm not going to be last. And then I looked up and I said, well, there's only four guys in front of me. And I said, oh, there's only three guys in front of me. Oh, there's only one guy in front of me, you know. And I'm going to stay right behind him. And we had maybe about an eighth of a mile left. And I said, this guy's kind of slowing down a little bit. And I said, he didn't hold me up. <laughs> so I just took off. That and, second gear. Well, I just took off. Well, yeah, because <laughs> I, I, wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to sprint. Right. And then the next time we ran that race was probably like later in the month. And the same thing happened. I said, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm just going to lay back and see what this guy does. And he's flying. And I just, just start you know, picking them off one by one. You know, and then got there, that same spot, took off again. I got, a, I got a letter from the guy the other day. He says, you know, you don't remember me, but we were in Fort Jackson together. And I, was, I thought I was going to win that mile race. And I was cruising, and I thought I had it, and all of a sudden this guy comes up over my left shoulder, and I, where did he come from? Isn't that something? He remembered you. Yeah, that that was my whole thing. It was like, I was running to win. And in some ways, there's a a nice life lesson in there, really, and it's, you know, I think of composure, you know, um, just being composed, and then when you need to turn it on, you still have the energy to do so. Well, that is one of the aspects of baseball and pitching that's missing right now. Because when you looked at a game before, if you saw a fellow like a Bob Gibson or Steve Carlton or Tom Seaver pitch, Fergie Jenkins, for the first three innings, they would be bobbing and weaving. But they, boom, 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 they, you know, they'd all of a sudden get things straight. Then in the fourth, fifth, and sixth inning, it would be one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Seventh, eighth, and ninth inning, nobody even smelled the ball. It's like because they had that, they had that third gear. And boom, and, and I remember, and I always said that the, the greatest pitching performances I've ever seen over a period of time were by Juan Marichal in Candlestick Park. Because Candlestick Park was a place that you didn't even want to pitch in, in in July because it was cold. It was so cold. And here was Juan Marichal from the Dominican Republic with water on that mound. You know, the wind's blowing probably 20 miles an hour. You know, it's probably...
probably 60 degrees, mm -hmm. and he's got a dicky on, and uh, you're cold, and he's out there just big old kicking everything, and you know, so how's this guy doing it? And you look up, all of a sudden, two hours later, the game's over. You got two hits, no runs. You struck out ten guys. Incredible. <laughs> How this guy do it? But it was just that willpower. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's missing in baseball, where pitchers don't know how to orchestrate a game so that you know you you go get the first three innings, boom, you knock those down, then you cruise the middle inning, then you got something left for that final stretch. Right. They they, they blow it all by the time they get to the seventh inning. Right. Right. So um, you're often referred to, and I don't know if this is norm, but at least in the Binghamton area, you're referred to as gentleman, L. Down. That wasn't in Binghamton, though. Where did that come from? Uh, Vince Scully. Okay. Uh, Vince Scully called me gentleman L. because he said I always seemed so cool and composed. You didn't know that. You know, when you've been around for a while, that comes from confidence. Sure. That's why you're cool and composed. You don't get upset on the mound because my my mentors were, you know, Whitey Ford and Ralph Terry. They were all cool and composed. And of course, you're playing with the Yankees. You know, you don't have to worry. They're going to catch up all the time. But when I was here, they had a guy from, a guy from Trenton, a guy named Harry Blaze. I don't, even, I don't know what happened to Harry. He was writing for the Trenton paper. He came to write an article on me. I had won like four or five games at that time. I had three shutouts or something. And he wrote an article and it had, and the headline said, Mr. Cool of the Southern Tier. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Mr. Smooth of the Southern Tier. And all my friends said, what's going on up there, man? We know you. <laughs> that's great. Maybe that's that's when you started to really come into your own. I was playing with a lot of the older players. Mm -hmm. I, again, I was, that was my first year in baseball. Some of these players had been through college mm -hmm. and played in the College World Series. They were 24, 25 years old. Here, I was like 19 years old, you know, and they was like, how's this guy? He's older than he says he is. I said, no, go look it up. I played in the Babe Ruth League in 56. <laughs> man, <I'm> <laughs> That's great. So, Al, how, how do you define success in general? Not even talk about baseball. Well, you, 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 we all set standards, and, and we set goals that we like to attain. And you don't necessarily always achieve all those goals, but you always work by, by those standards. You have to have those standards. That's, that's, that's your Bible. And success is being able to elevate yourself and your family, whoever you, whoever you're, you're supporting, to a higher level than they were when you first got together. So my my feeling was always to help my siblings elevate themselves socially and economically above where they were. And of course, a lot of that begins with education. Sure. And people have to be willing to, you know, they have to be willing and receptive to education. And that's success. But it, I never looked at in pitching. I never forget the 64. That was the year I led the league in strikeouts. I really, I, my record was like 13 and 8. Well, I won 13 the year before. And Yogi took over as manager in 64. And the first thing he says was, well, you know, Downing won 13 last year in half a season. He should win 26 this year. <laughs> I'm going, wait a minute. Good <laughs> rationale, right? <laughs> That's a little well, bit of pressure. Like, I'm sure he had a little <laughs> chuckle in there somewhere. Sure. You know? But Yogi was cool like that. He was yeah. really, I mean, he really was a good man, really good man. And uh, I, I think that we went, first eight starts I had in 64, my record was 2-2. Two and two. My earned average was 2.31. And I get a letter from a high school baseball coach, Mr. Carl Palumbo, and it said, Al, I know you're only two and two, but look at your earner and average. They're just not scoring runs for you. 
And he was, he was right. He was right on. And that was that was the difference. Hmm. So I never looked myself upon it as, as not pitching well. I just sure. was that, well, I'm not winning games. And again, it's a team sport. It's a team sport. Team exactly. Sport. Exactly. So with the success part was, was I doing my job? Yes, I was doing my job. But we, we still won the pennant that year. We went to the World Series. So. Sure. Are there any daily practices that um, you attribute to your long-term success? Anything you well, do? I try to keep a positive attitude on everything, uh, and uh, a lot of that. One of my old golf buddies, he and Frank Robinson and Don Buford and I played golf together. He's 86 now, and I ran into him the other day at the golf. I said, "How are you doing?" He said, "Man, I'm 86. I got all my papers in order." And I'm thinking, "Whoa, man, wait, <laughs> slow down! I'm talking right. to you. you right, know? right, right. <laughs> Not here. <laughs> That's right." <laughs> but he says, "Ali says I'm just relaxing and, and just." enjoying myself and coming out and hitting that golf ball. I can't hit it as hard. Sometimes I only play nine holes. And I, I, I think just relaxing and enjoying life, having a positive attitude. Uh, I try to get in touch with as many of my friends as I could. And, 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 and you know, some of them aren't there anymore. Others you, you, know, you don't, can't have, con you don't have contact with. But just get in touch with them. Tell them you're thinking of them. You know, they will say, why are you calling me, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, right. Oh, man, I just want to talk, see how you're doing, you know. No, that's nice. And, you know, I think in general, people in general, we're so busy, uh, yes. especially Americans. Uh, we tend to have a very hectic lifestyle. But to take the time out, and you're not the first person I'm hearing this from, to call some old friends. I mean, it's really it's, important it's as a, a society well, to do it's that. An, it's important to them. It's important to you. It makes you feel good. And... Uh, I remember when I graduated from junior high school, and we had a high school, junior high school, we had a great junior high, we had five junior high schools in Trenton, and they, 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 they basically, basically fed into this pool, into this one high school, where you had like 4,500 students in, in three grades. And so I remember when I graduated from junior high school, ninth grade, and uh, we were standing on the corner, we had graduation, what do you do? Well, you got no car, you can't go any place, right? you're walking wherever you go. And I remember it was about 10 or 12 of us who were standing on the corner, and we started, we started our version of singing. <laughs> you know, we were the Frankie Valley before Frankie Valley, you know, singing on the corner. And then someone said, hey, let's go down to get some food. Well, the only place in open, was open was this Chinese restaurant downtown. We all walked down the street singing, and we go down there, and then the guy was closing up because it was close to 9 o'clock. And then we walked back to the, the junior high school and stood in front of the school and danced and, 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 and sang some more. And I, I, I sent the guy a card because I was, I was, I got the whole list of guys who graduated high school with me. And I'd pick out certain people and send them Christmas cards. And I sent him a card and he said, out in the card, he said, I remember the junior high school graduation when we sat on the corner, stood on the corner and sang, you know, for two or three hours. And we didn't want to go home. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you think junior high school is the end. Of course, you get in high school and you, you replay that all over again. Sure. So that 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 tension and, and, and that connection is very very important. Mm -hmm. So in that, what what advice uh, do you have for young people today that are maybe in junior high school, high school? Um, there's something in that. I mean, I, I know my kids. Uh, my daughter's in tenth grade. She'll be in tenth grade. My son will be in sixth grade. It's definitely not the same as when we grew up. The neighborhoods aren't the same. No. Kids come home. They're you know they get their homework done and all that, but they're on their iPads and phones and you know just we're trying to get them to continue to be with their friends you know go out and play it's tough well I think first off you have to develop a group of friends and people that you really like and 
enjoy being around. They have things in common, and uh, and try to maintain that friendship, those friendships, and and it could be just something as simple as just calling them up and say, hey, did did you read this comic in the paper today, or did you you know did you read this story? And of course, everybody wants to read the op-ed page today, but just just have that contact and uh, and. I think when you have that, then this it's something that you it's it's invaluable, and I think sometimes we, we lose track of that. It's like the fast food mentality. Well, it's not yeah, that's old news, you know. And mm-hmm. I said, no, it's not old news. It's, it's old friends talking about new news, you know. You sure. just keeping up with the times, and and uh, I think that keeps you young. And of course, the, you know the you know your your kids or your grandkids or it's the neighbor's grandkids. Anybody you know who you see and you talk to, you know, and and people you know, and I love coming up here because I, there are uh, actually there's no one here who was here when I was here about that long ago, but uh, but but still Binghamton, mm-hmm. and there's so and we have that in common. That's this this town and and what this town represented to me when I was here. Mm-hmm. How has the area changed? Since, oh, since well, you don't have the, you don't have that that. Presence, that IBM presence. We had the IBM presence. That was magnificent because it was like booming. Everything, every it was so many little businesses going on around. And Court Street was jammed, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, now you, you see a lot of vacant buildings, and that's that's just I guess progress because you put the interstate in, or you put uh, whatever it comes in that's going to say we bypass that town and that town and go to this town or whatever. But it, it's great to see that they're putting so much housing in for the college because that means now at least the educational process is ongoing. Sure. And then these are young people who probably will come up with ideas that say, you know, that's not a bad place, you know. With the technology age, you know, you start a business here, you know, it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg. And then, boom, you get going and you can always reach out and you reach out all over the globe now. Right, right. You be wherever you want to be. No, and I think that mix of students and business, um, you know, it's really starting to work here. Um, as you mentioned, there's a lot of student housing downtown. Yes. Um, and, and they're really a big part of our community, you know, supporting the restaurants and, and the different yes. venues that are downtown. So I think for Binghamton, the university is, is really crucial to yes. our future. And one of the things you asked me, too, is about school, because I, I know I was like... Uh, I was like the guy never sat in front of the class. Never sat in front of the class. Don't sit in the back of the class. Sit in the middle. You know, and sit like this here. You know, <laughs> do your work. <laughs> yeah, like you're working. You're right, right, right. Working, you know? don't, yeah. don't call on me. Right, don't call on me. You know. <laughs> right. And I, I had a, uh, I had an advisor in ninth grade. His name was Joseph Ferentino, and he was also our history teacher. And he says, uh, and he, and he was very serious about history. He loved history. He loved European history and. Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong, you know, I said, oh, Mao Zedong, oh, sure. <laughs> and, and so he, he said, uh, Mr. Downey, I'd like to talk to you after the class. I said, okay. And he had had my brother. My brother was three years ahead of me, and my brother was real smart, much smarter than I am. You know? So anyhow, so I said, what did I do wrong? Maybe I was sleeping in class. And he says, you know, he was a guidance, he was a, the guidance counselor for our class, for the ninth grade class. He says, you know, I talk to the teachers here, I talk to the custodians, I talk to the students, everybody likes you. I said, well, that's nice to know, but what did I do wrong? You know? <laughs> right, right, right. So I think you're a rough class president. I said, oh, 
She said, you think I can win? He said, yeah, you'll win. <laughs> of course, he's guidance counselor. Right, right. Of course, I'm going to win. <laughs> Did you do it? Of course, and it changed my whole life because what it, it took me out of that hiding here yes. into being a guy who stood up and had, had to talk. And so my best friend, Ed Berkelhammer, and I, Ed, Ed and I started school together in kindergarten and graduated together in 12th grade. And, and he always said, I'm going to be the team doctor for the Yankees, and you're going to be the star pitcher. He said that back in, like, about ninth grade. Right? And, well, Ed said, I'll be, your, I'll be your campaign manager. So he's my campaign manager. So well, when we get to Trenton High, the 10th grade, he says, you're going to run for president. I'm going to be your – and see, for three years, he was my campaign That's manager, great. and we won for three years. You know, so. That's nice. But it, it, made, it made all the difference in the world because it got me out of my shell and, and I remember specifically when I came up to the Yankees being this 20-year-old kid and sitting back and not saying anything. And all the players there, you know, some of these guys had been to five World Series and you'd have pregame shows because you had TV every day. And they would say, well, we want somebody to go on the show. And they said, let the kid do it. So I'm doing all these shows, right? And, and, and other than that, I'm not saying anything. Then about, oh, 95, I was working at CBS. And a guy I was working with, Jimmy Hunter, he works for the Orioles now. He says, hey, Al, he says, uh, look, my church is having a fundraiser over here in, in, uh, outside of Red Bank, and I want you to come over, and we'll buy a ticket and everything. And uh, you and you and the scooter and Bill White are going to be on the dance. I said, okay. So I would get on the dance, and, and, and Bill White talks. And then I talk. And then the scooter gets on, and the scooter turns and says, Downey. He said, I've known you all these years. I never heard you talk so much. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> He's another great, great guy. He That's was a great, great guy. Yeah, I met him once. Yeah. So we have a lot in common. I, I played baseball um, uh, high school and a little bit of college. Where'd you go to high school? Binghamton High School. Oh, you did? Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, my, my counselor, Judd Blanchard, encouraged me to run for president of the class, which I did. And, it, and that also changed, changed my yes. life. Um, but... Uh, Mike, the, the coaching situation was not the best yes. for, for, for the time I was there. I'm curious, and, and that really changed my whole outlook on the game, the politics of, of it. Um, it really took my heart out of it, yes. and, I, and I, I worked so hard up until that point. I'm curious how your high school coaches were, and if that made any impact at all on, on your career. It made a big, big impact. Um, my basketball coach, was JV baseball coach. The baseball coach was the JV basketball coach. And the JV, the, the varsity baseball coach was, was Mr. Plumbo. He used to work for the city parks and recreation when I was a kid. And he had coached the American Legion team back in 48 that had won a national championship in Trenton. So he was like a legend. That's and all through that time, he was working his way through the uh, junior high school system. And all of a sudden, he gets the job coaching in the, in the high school at the Trenton Central. And he also coached uh, Post 93, which was like one of the storied post uh, Legion American teams. Legion teams in the country, really. And so he would run these these youth programs. And they were for kids like 9 to 15. And he had them at the different park venues in Trenton. And I was like 9 years old when I first went. And I was like a peewee. And there's a picture that circulated on the internet years later. And it showed Mr. Plumbo. Mr. Plumbo is showing Al Downing how to throw a curveball, and I'm this little peewee, got my hat here like this, oh, and they got these three big guys like here. My nephew said, why are you playing with those grown men? I said, these guys were only 12 years old. Right. 
But Mr. Plumbo told me years later, he said, Alan, he said, I saw you when you were nine. He said, every year you would come to those, 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 uh, those uh, lectures. And he said, I kept wondering, where does this kid live, you know? I mean, he's, coming, he's all over Trent. He said, how'd you get there? I said, well, I would get my uh, quarter or something on the bus. Maybe I'll walk home. And if it was close enough, I would walk. He said, well, why did you come? I said, because you taught me the fundamentals. And just to make a long story short, the first time we came to uh, baseball practice, uh, batting practice for pitchers when I was with the Yankees in 61, and you had to get in the other bunt, three bunts, and then you had, before you swung the bat. And after we finished batting practice, Frank Crisetti was a third base coach. He comes up to me and said, Al, he said, where'd you learn to bunt like that? I said, in this camp we used to have in Trenton, and we, they taught us how to bunt, you know. And he said, wow. He said, we had to, why don't you teach those other guys? I said, well, you know, it was different. Then you learn, sure. you learn the fundamentals of the game first. Sure. And boy, what an art there is to bunting in itself. And it's confidence after a yes, while. Yes, yes. A kid the other day bunted it, and the ball hit him like that. Well, yeah. he had his hand around the barrel of the bat. Right. Where, where are you going to bunt the ball? Right. You know? Yeah. And in the National League, obviously, you have to, to bat. So You have to bat, and you're facing guys that, uh, you know, that's why you don't see too many uh, bean balls in the National League, because the pitcher has to bat. Right. You know, and, and a lot of instances, guys get mad, like the guy on the Giants got mad that time, and he, he, and he threw at Hunter. Uh, not Hunter. Uh, uh, was it Bryce Harper? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was ridiculous. The guy hit a home run off you. So what? Right. He hits home runs off everybody. You know, we going to hit, sure, don't hit take everybody it out, who hits a home run. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So a uh, very close friend of mine who I, who I played uh, baseball with for many years, his name is Freddie Seymour, uh, works for Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. One of his crusades today, um, kind of as a side project, um, is really to bring awareness to the dangers of smokeless tobacco. So I'm just curious, you, you know, you played through the, the 60s, 70s in, in, in your broadcasting career. What's your um, opinion on, on tobacco and, and is it something that um, is still a big part of the game? I don't date women who smoke. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and my, father, my father drove a truck for a construction company and he would have a cigar and he would chew it. And then when the, we get like a, a job, those guys would, you know, a couple, you get to always get the, like, not the carpenters, we usually the, the masons, be spitting tobacco. You know? right, right. And when I started playing ball, I see guys spitting tobacco. I said, well, when you go home, you kiss your wife? I mean, you know, what, how do you do this? You know, you, right. you smoke it, you're chewing this stuff. And, and, and guys never thought that there was some, some kind of dangers involved. And, and there was a guy named Bill Tuttle. I don't know if you remember that name. Bill Tuttle was an outfielder for the Detroit Tigers back in the, in the 50s and 60s. And he was the first one who brought attention to the carcinogens in the smokeless tobacco, and especially the snuff. And it, it had eaten away his jaw, the jawbone and everything. And, he, and this was back in the 70s he was telling guys about this. And I'm thinking, why are guys still doing this? I mean, I don't understand. You see guys have a little, that little lump, that's that, that's, that's the smoke that's tobacco. And I'm thinking, you gotta be crazy, it's like smoking. It's like they've been telling us they put that little disclaimer on the side of the packages back in 52, and you're still smoking? You know, really, so I, no, I, I don't understand that at all. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we need, we need more advocates <laughs> for it, but do you, is, it still, is it still in the game? Well, I see guys, you know, they got their little chaw. Right. I mean, maybe it's bubble gum. I don't know. But mm -hmm. bubble gum was usually the vehicle to hold it together. That's mm -hmm. what you use to hold the tobacco together and mm -hmm. also 
that that acidity taste keeps the acidity taste out of your mouth. Right. But yeah, it's still in the game, but I don't know. The guys don't like it in the dugout because it's terrible in the sure, dugout. Sure. Um, so tell us something, maybe your closest friends, and I'm not talking about a secret, just something about you that maybe your closest friends and family don't know. I mean, I know you love old movies. I, mean, I love old movies. I have, I have a buddy back east, and, he, and he, we talk about once a week, and uh, we, we always say, did you see what was on the other night? You know, and he said, you know, Key Largo was on the other night. I said, I've never seen Key Largo, you know, but I saw Casablanca, you know. Right. But I love old movies, and I love see, oh, seeing the old stars. And, you know, you see the old stars, and so someone like uh, Lauren Bacall when she was young, she was a very voluptuous woman, you know. Right. And, and, and Ava Gardner, and you see all these old stars, you say, wow, well, man, these guys. I mean, these women today don't compare to them because they were just naturally beautiful. You know? Sure, they didn't have to undress to be beautiful. Right. But, but and the, and the actors were tough guys. They were really tough guys. You know, they, they were guys you figure you saw in a bar somewhere. You know, I seen a guy. You know, got a scar here. And stuff. <laughs> <laughs> they were tough guys. Yeah. yeah. Anything else about you that um, people may not know? No, I'm, I'm cool. I'm quiet. I'm an open book. I I sleep a lot, you guys. Say, why do you sleep so much? I say, hey, when something happens, I'll, something exciting happens, I'll find. I'll notice it. <laughs> sure, sure. So, I'm sure everyone asks you about this, and, and I, you know, people would probably be upset if I didn't. But I'm just, I'm just curious, and maybe a little bit of a different spin on this. But take us back to April 8, 1974, when you're pitching, um, and and Hank Aaron hits number uh, 715. Um, Obviously, someone had to throw that pitch, um, but was that moment in that at that time was that purposeful to you in any way in your in your life in your career? Did it have any meaning I, outside of you know? Well, up until then, I think my record against the Braves was nine and zero. So yeah, it was purposeful. <laughs> so and we were going for a pennant, you know, that was, that was a big deal. But uh, it it was purposeful from a standpoint that. I had a tremendous amount of respect for Henry Aaron, always have had. And when I first came to the big leagues, and they were, I think at the time, they were in Bradenton, then they came over to West Palm Beach. And so we would see them like six times a spring. And every time I saw him, you know, I'd say, hey, Mr. Aaron, how you doing? He said, hey, how are you doing? He says, everything okay? They treat me okay? He said, if you need anything, let me know. He was always very helpful in that respect. And, and that, that he, was, he was truly one of the older mentors who took – Younger guys said, "If you know, if you need to know anything, you need any questions, you know." And again, he really cared. Right, right, right off the bat, because he had gone through that, and he had to do it in Milwaukee, and then of course when he went to Atlanta later, which was really tough because that was that was a big transition for for baseball. But uh, to me, I think Walter Austin really was ahead of his time because he understood that he looked at his pitching staff. He said, "Who do I have?" He said, "I have Sutton, Messersmith." Tommy John, Rao, and Downey. Who is the guy who's been in the most postseason activity? And been in the big leagues the longest? I was. Yes. Yeah. And, and, uh, that experience. That experience. That yes. experience. Because I pitched against his team in 63 in the World Series. Mm -hmm. And he and most of those guys were probably still in high school then. Right. And he he understood that. He That, that meant a lot to him. And uh, and he said, you know, uh, you, you're going to pitch that game. And I said, okay. And so... Uh, it was like, hey, let's go get him. 
Sure. And uh, you don't think anything about it. And how are you going to get out here? Aaron has said, well, I can't strike him out. At that point in my career, I no longer was a strikeout pitcher. I could strike guys out, but I was not that 8, 10 strikeout guy. And so I said, well, I got to get him to hit ground balls or shortstop. Ground balls or shortstop. And sometimes those ground balls, those sinkers stay up. And they go up. Yeah. <laughs> up, up, and away. So that was, that was, that's one of the experiences of life you have. And, uh, and everybody says, well, you wish you, don't you wish it happened to someone else? I said, well, why? I'm just, that was a tremendous moment. I mean, I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of that moment, you know, especially for such a fine guy who's been such a great ambassador for the game of baseball. And not only by what he says, but he lived it. He, 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 he walked the walk out there on the field, too. I mean, he was a premier player who didn't really get his due until he was retired. Right. No, he was a class act, that's, yes. that's for sure. So uh, just a couple more questions, uh, and uh, then we could wrap it up here. But um, So taking this conversation just a little bit deeper, what do you think your purpose is here on this earth? To be a mentor to younger people, as I have many, very many mentors of my, my own, teachers, uh, ministers, uh, people who helped me when I went to the South in 62, and didn't know where I was going, and uh, a gentleman who was shining shoes in the hotel said to me, he says, where are you going to live? Because we could stay in the hotel until opening day, then we had, it's 62, then you had to get a place to live. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, he said, well, I know somebody in my congregation, maybe I can help you out. And he found somebody, and uh, they hooked me up with a fellow who was um, 75 years old. He had founded the first black bank in the state of Virginia. Wow. And his name was Mr. Banks. <laughs> <laughs> no coincidence and, there. And with every, every night I would come home, and he lived in this place. It was called the Plaza, and they had a tremendous community up there. And, and it was like you walk, you're coming down the street over, over Brook Avenue and then you go up the street and it's like a, a big horseshoe. And you could either go through or you could come back around and come back over Brook again. And just tree-lined, park setting. But at night there were no lights. And so when I was, and I'm walking, I had no car then. And so when I'm coming home from the game at night, and I, I got my ears pinned back the first half of the season in 62. I was, I was triple A balling all these old guys and I was trying to blow everybody away from the plate sure. and just go see line drives fly by my head. And he, he was sitting on the porch and I could smell his pipe because he had a corn cob pipe and he had his cat named Thomas and he'd be sitting there with Thomas and I could, I could smell the pipe and he said, how you doing? I said, yeah, you should sit down a minute. He said, how'd you do this evening? I said, oh, Mr. Banks, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's rough. He said, you got to hang with him, you know. He said, you know, you just sit. Take it easy, you know, you're here for a purpose, you know, you're perfect. They think you can help them win, but you gotta relax a little bit. I'm only 21. So I relaxed and uh, those words were invaluable. Then he told me how he started the bank and you know, how much trouble he had in Poundland trying to start that bank. But when he got his, once he got it started, the community was behind him and became very successful. And then this is what you have to do with your money. Save a little bit here and then, and he gave me all these Wonderful. words of wisdom. And then the ultimate vote of confidence he gave me was midway through the 62 season, they were open that spire, you notice the, the, the needle up in uh, Seattle? Yes, Space Needle. And he and his girlfriend were going to go. <laughs> I said, your girlfriend, you're 75 years old. <laughs> well, 
out. You don't know Al. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And they were going to go. And he said, look, I want you to take care of the house while I'm going. And I said, well, we're going about a week. I said, well, can I have my younger brother come down with me? He said, yeah, you can have your own younger brother. No party. I said, okay. So my younger brother came and stayed with me for that week. And it was really fun because he trusted me with that. That's know? neat. But he's a wonderful person. That's neat. But, but like I said, that's another one of those mentors you get just by circumstance. Sure. And then you, and then you learn from them. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, you learn from everybody you come in contact. People always have uh, words of wisdom. And the irony is in 2000, I was working for Fox South. And I was doing commentary on the, on the Braves games on, on Wednesday. And about midway through the season, the fans were irate. And they were sending all these emails about how they didn't like the way I announced. That I was too critical of their Braves. And I'm thinking, these people don't know anything about television commentating, you know. And you're a Yankee. What do you know about What do you know about <laughs> the Braves? Anyhow? I mean, they gave me all this. And one of the, the fellow who was the, the, uh, the, the, he, he was usher for Ted Turner's box was named Water Banks, right? So I asked him, I said, you have a relative in Richmond? He said, no, I don't I know. That's, that, you know, I don't know. I don't know that, you know? I said, oh, he says, uh, but I hear you're, you're not happy with this job. I said, I didn't say I wasn't happy with the job. I said, I don't like the fact that people don't understand what my job is supposed to entail. And he said, Al, he says, there's no saying. He says, when you have to make a key decision like that, sleep on it. Mr. Banks, I've slept on it for a few weeks now. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so you get those, those sure. little pearls from different people. Sure. So uh, in my household, there was no color barrier whatsoever growing up in the 70s and 80s. Um, there seems to be some tension today. I don't know what it was like for you growing up in the 50s and 60s, you know. But, but, you know, what can we do as a society to just bring people closer together and see past the color. It's, too, it, it's not impossible. It, it's much more difficult now because when I grew up, in our neighborhood, it was very diverse. I mean, we had Italian people, we had Polish people, we had Irish people. Jewish, I'm we sure. Jewish people, yeah. we had, those days we were colored people. And, and we all shopped in the same places, whether it was food fair or A&P, whether it was supermarkets, you know. Or the local grocery stores, grocery stores, you all your kids all went to the same schools, and uh, they and all the kids went to the boys' club, and the boy especially play the thir- you play games, and, yeah. and that's for because working parents, and also on Thursday night was movie night, you go to movie night and watch the movies, and so there was that uh, that that uh, camaraderie from the neighborhood, and that's changed because the neighborhoods now are suburbs. And so, and, and, and people left They're in isolated the, now. Well, the people left in the neighborhoods are the people who can't buy in the suburbs, and so they're they're still in the inner cities. So they have their own community, and in most instances, they're they're people probably who haven't uh, really uh, moved that far in the, in the economics stratus of the, of the society. And so therefore, they're they're kind of left behind. Right. They they don't have the wherewithal to get to the suburbs. And then the people in the suburbs are there, and they're not going to come back to the city. And when you have that schism, then it's very difficult to, to, to heal it. And that's going to take some work. It's mm-hmm. going to take a lot of work. But, but again, everything starts with talking. You have to talk. You have to speak. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay, last but not least, uh, 
what does Al Downing want your, what do you want your legacy to be? That he was an atta- he was a reachable guy. He was a nice guy. I, I'm not not a great guy. I, I never said I was a gentleman. I, I never that was I, I never did like that tag mm-hmm. for the most part. You know, I, the one I liked was Ace because Willie Davis gave me that, and he has this baritone voice. Comes our age, you know, <laughs> and it, it rank, rankled some pitchers on the team. But they said, "Hey, don't you think we have one guy as an ace?" I said, "Man, come on, it's just a word." Right. But to this day, those guys, those guys call me Ace, yes. you know, and 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 that that that's something that comes from your work, mm-hmm. you know, and, and uh, of course my name Giggy comes from my family and a few friends who I went to grade school with, who went to high school with, and, call you Giggy, and then and then Yogi, Hector Lopez, Elston Howard, Whitey Ford, all call me Giggy. Really? Yes. And Stan Bonson, Stan Bonson was over in uh, Boca Raton now, yeah. So they all call me Giggy, and so yeah, because they knew that's my family nickname, sure. and, and and so I want people to know that I was a guy who was he was attainable. He was, he, and I wasn't a, one of those guys who's going out there trying to bean guys, or I was trying to win games by fighting hard, and and, and I believe in working hard. You want you want something, you work hard for it. Even when I went to television, I was like that. And I I ran a little bit of. Uh, conflict there with one of our directors he told me you think you know everything and I said look I know baseball you know television <laughs> that's the difference right yeah and I'm not right. telling you how to do your job you know but uh, but no I, I just I'm not I mean I'm not, I'm not special there are a lot of people guys I grew up with who are engineers and doctors and lawyers and priests and ministers and teachers and so they did a whole lot of things and we all just talk about how nice it was to grow up in that age you right. know, and make the friendships we made. Right. Well, you are a class act. We are so happy to have you on the show, and maybe we could even do it again well, when, when you. you come back. And, and thanks so much for all My the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.